One of the things I've been focusing on as we look at the book of Deuteronomy is understanding that every, every narrative in the Old Testament points us toward the redemption that's central to the message of the New Testament. At the same time, I've wanted us to see that the message of redemption is just as central to the teachings of the Old Testament. And I know that seems hard to do in the context of God judging and violently evicting the Canaanite people so that the Israelites could reclaim the land. And having said that, I'm not going to apologize or make excuses for God because of what he's doing. And that's because it's well within his right as a sovereign king and creator and sustainer of the universe. Especially when we consider how predatory and violent Canaanite culture was. As I've said before, and probably will continue throughout this series, the level and horrific extent of that violence was beyond anything that most of us can or ever want to concede. But many modern preachers and scholars tend to downplay that and instead cast a shadow over what God's doing. And that's exactly why I've couched my sermons around the idea of redemption being central to what's happening, actually happening in the Old Testament. And that's not going to change today because I'm going to do it in a way that's even more pointed as we take a look at the Old Testament concept of justice. As we do that, there are four things I think God wants us to see. First, justice is an inherent character of God's people. Second, justice presumes innocence at the same time it protects the rights of the accused. After that, we'll see that justice protects human life, and then last, that justice provides a remedy rather than retaliation. So as I said, let's look at each of those to see what God wants to show us. When we look at Deuteronomy, one of the things we need to remember is that almost everything Moses said is meant to reinforce and explain the Ten Commandments, as well as the various stipulations in Leviticus and Numbers which is exactly why the book is titled Second Law, or Gephthos Nomos in ancient Greek. And we get that sense of explanation in the way this chapter opens. Listen to the first three verses. For the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he has given you, and when you have driven them out, settled in their towns and houses, and set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess, Determine the distances involved, and divide it into three parts the land the Lord your God has given you as inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. The first three verses in this chapter are essentially an introduction. An introduction that's meant to pointedly remind the Israelites of the responsibilities that accompany being God's people and that they're directly accountable to Him. But at the same time, it's meant to strip away the sense of self-righteousness and self-justification that always lingered in the background of the Israelites' faith and culture, while replacing it with a sense of conscience that was distinctly different than that of the Canaanites. Unlike their neighbors, the Israelites were set aside vengeance-based justice. And they were to replace it with a system that reflected the mercy and grace that were an inherent part of God's character. And that's why the language here is so strong. 
because Moses wants to ensure that the Israelites don't lose sight of that or that God is sovereign. But it's not as if they hadn't heard those words before because this is just an extension of the commands given in Numbers chapter 35 verses 9 through 28 and earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 41 through 43. These verses Moses is simply repeating himself to cement procedures that were introduced while the Israelites were still wandering around the desert. And that was particularly important at this point in time because the city said they're no longer a nomadic society. And God wanted their culture to have a merit-based and equitable judicial system that protected people while it still assured the rights of anyone accused but not convicted of a crime, which is something brought out even more clearly in the next set of verses. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety, anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally without malice of forethought. For instance, an enemy go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor <coughs> That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice or forethought. That is why I command you, command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territories, you promised that oath to your ancestors and gives you the whole land he promised them. Because you carefully follow all these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. Do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, <clears throat> which the Lord your God has given you as your inheritance, so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. The kind of blood, <coughs> blood revenge-based justice that Moses is pointing to is very typical of ancient Near East cultures. And that's what this passage is meant to cover. God's basically changing Israelite culture by insisting that they divorce themselves from that kind of justice. Instead, he wants them to implement a system that reflects the mercy and grace that's inherent in his character and in their individual lives as well as their communal lives. But it's also meant to highlight the heinous nature of capital crimes and the necessity for swift proportional justice, but only, only in cases where it's definably clear that a crime has taken place. As such, it was balancing the need to protect society while simultaneously ensuring the rights of those accused, but as I said, not convicted of a crime. All of these verses were literally, literally redefining the meaning and practice of justice while introducing elements of fairness and redemption that surrounded the culture and the surrounding culture's life. In fact, the leniency afforded in voluntary manslaughter cases described in this passage actually outstrip the sentencing guidelines of most modern laws. They're much, much more lenient than modern manslaughter laws. But what's somewhat hidden in the midst of this is that the system will only function if Israel obeys God's law and maintains its relationship with him. Otherwise, this whole thing's a wash. It's, it's going to fail. Now, all of this is important to us because our concept of justice is mistakenly based on the flawed concept of human goodness, which isn't the reality. 
as well as a very limited understanding of our concept of God, which is why modern legal systems are often more concerned about conviction rates rather than actual justice. And that's why we see, need to see justice through the lens of the cross. Because it's only when we grasp the depth of our own sins and what Christ did for us on the cross that we'll have a clearer understanding of the parameters and protections of true justice, which is what the next seven verses introduces. But if out of hate someone lies in me, assaults and kills a neighbor, and flees to one of those cities, the killer shall be sent for by that time elders, be brought back from the city and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. What's obvious in these verses is that the underlying motive is the need to protect the inviolable and sacred nature of human life. Which is why the penalty clause is so severe and appears to lack any sense of the mercy imperative implied in the previous verses in this passage. As much as anything, these verses are meant to clearly recognize humanity's weaknesses and to clearly differentiate between the intentional and unintentional crime. In a way, well, in a way, these middle verses are highlighting that hatred, angers, and self-righteous grudges are counter to God's will and that those emotions have no place among his people, particularly if they result in the death of another human being. But the words here are also meant to delegitimize any sort of mob rule while simultaneously helping us see that the judicial system is actually an extension of God's sovereignty. Along with that, the wording points out the need to seek out truth rather than simply seeking justice. At the same time, the wording contains a command that prevents society from shying away from severely punishing capital crimes. What's frightening about these two verses is, that the, re is the reality that in God's eyes, society is accountable for its failure to ensure the judicial system is free from prejudice and fully functioning, which is what we see at the end of verse 13 with the words, so that it may go well with you. The unanswered question we're left with at this point is, how do we balance the stark demands here against the admonition in James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that requires believers to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom? Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not in mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, that's one of the things the last set of verses addresses. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stone, set up by your predecessors, and the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that may be committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in office at that time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar giving false testimony against the fellow Israelite, then due to the false witnesses the witness intended to do to the other party, you must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, 
eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Although the tone is somewhat stern, the wording in this last set of verses is actually very people-oriented. And it establishes a legal equality that's absent of any sense of favoritism. But along with that, it also introduces a number of safeguards that ensure the integrity and fairness of the judicial system while anchoring the whole legal process in the protective clothing of due diligence. Just as importantly, it holds elders accountable for any, any judicial decision they make. Now, all of this is significant because these safeguards set aside the norm of escalating tit-for-tat vengeance that was present at the time. It initiates measures designed to prevent a miscarriage of justice that extends, and also extends a new level of mercy and compassion to both the innocent and those accused but not yet convicted. Just as importantly, and in line with the rest of this chapter, these verses quietly emphasize that real justice rests with God and provides remedy rather than retaliation, which is what St. James and, more importantly, Jesus was pointing to in Matthew 5, 38 through 41, and he said, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now despite what people think, Jesus isn't setting aside the stipulations of Deuteronomy 19. In fact, if you look at Jesus' words early on in Matthew 5, it's evident that nothing could be further from the truth. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly would be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Just as Moses was prophetically pointing out in Deuteronomy 19, Jesus is stripping away any, any presumed right to retribution. And then he's challenging people to recognize that true justice is found only in him and in what he did on the cross. When we step back and look at all of this in the context of the ancient Near East and all of Deuteronomy, you begin to realize that the mandates in this chapter provide a framework for preserving society and protecting human life that didn't previously exist. But they're also meant to help us see how abhorrent crime, and particularly violent crime, is to God. And that it literally leaves a stain on the community and the land and market for divine judgment at the end of time. Now, despite that dark note, Deuteronomy 19 also ensures that laws are defined and enforceable. Well, sir, but simultaneously ensuring the integrity of the judicial system by balancing the pursuit of guilt with the presumption of innocence. It also challenges the notion of God in the Old Testament being callous and judgmental because it introduces a new level of compassion and mercy into the ecosystem and into society. 
Having said that, it's also evident that Deuteronomy 19 presents a challenge to us, to modern society, because it calls out our culture's tendency to shun God and God's word. As much as any other part of scripture, Deuteronomy 19 demands that we view justice through the redemptive lens of God's word. And we shouldn't take that admission too, that admission too lightly. Because the mercy and grace inherent in Deuteronomy 19, and especially in the New Testament, are only applicable if there's real repentance that's tied to God's sovereign authority and to how that was ultimately exercised at the cross. Please pray with me, please. Almighty Father, we live in a world that denies you the honor and glory you are right to do, you are right to do. And yet we demand a perfect world, an Eden free of the ills and sins that plague our lives and the lives of those around us. Give us the courage to live in a way pleasing to you that testifies to the reality and peace of your kingdom. Teach us to turn the other cheek, to bear life's burdens and indignities with the same grace your son did, and to be as generous and kind as he was. Enable us to show the world the love and mercy it so desperately needs. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.